0: Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Roadside Horror Show. Show. This week we are in Utah.
1: Utah. Do you know what the Utah state nickname is? Not anymore. (laughs) It's the Beehive State. I didn't know that.
0: I don't think I ever knew that now that you said it.
1: Yeah, yeah, me either. Um, The Beehive State, yes. It is a callback to the mormon founding of utah the beehive is an important symbol in mormonism it stands for harmony and cooperation industry thrift and perseverance so i think that's kind of lovely huh. to be called that's cool the beehive state mm-hmm.
0: i was like what the hell does a beehive have to do with mormonism so thank you for explaining <laughs> that to me that's pretty cool trust me i had to look it up i was like
1: what why okay it's like do they really love honey is it like a thing I'm like okay
0: are they those kind of people that like being stung by bees because it's supposed to alleviate all sorts of pain
1: oh yeah yeah some that's uh... freaking weird
0: yeah (laughs) i saw that on my strange addiction or like whatever it was and i was like you've got
1: to be freaking kidding me yeah it's like super intense acupuncture
0: yeah not to mention that it kills the bees
1: yeah that's kind of mean just saying honeybees are precious exactly um let's see i have a couple more fun facts about utah to get us warmed up all righty so the big one we're going to talk about first is how utah got its name utah it's kind of an odd name but apparently it derives from the Ute indians and it thought so okay and it means people of the mountains which makes a lot of sense utah's very mountainous for sure it is uh the great salt lake in Utah is the largest lake west of the Mississippi and the largest saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere.
0: The only saltwater lake that I know of, because they don't think of lakes as being saltwater, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. There are some out there for sure, but um the Great Salt Lake is actually a smaller remnant of a much, much larger prehistoric lake that's called Lake Bonneville or Bonneville. The lake originally stretched over a good portion of the territory that is today, Utah.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, Utah has the highest literacy rate of any U.S. state, which is pretty cool. And it's the only state where every county contains some part of a national forest because there's that much nature in Utah. Wow. Yep, yep. Uh, So, as I mentioned before, uh, Utah was founded by Mormon pioneers, and today 60% of Utah's population considers themselves Mormon, which is kind of crazy when you look at the overall American population where just 2% consider themselves Mormon.
0: Holy crap. Okay. Yeah.
1: Very high concentration of Mormons in Utah. Uh, It also makes Utah the most religiously homogenous state in the U.S., which is kind of interesting. Uh, A lot of the aspects of Mormon culture are reflected in Utah's culture, uh, especially in some of their more unique liquor laws, for example. Uh, I think if you've seen SLC Punk, you've seen some of the crazy things that non-Mormons will get up to just to get some beer, like crossing state lines, drinking cough medicine, that sort of stuff. But uh, the liquor laws in Utah are extremely strict. Any beer that's over 4% ABV is considered liquor and it cannot be sold in grocery stores, taverns, or convenience stores. Holy crap. Okay. Yep. So if you do want a drink in Utah, you can go to a bar. Uh, Some restaurants also serve liquor and it's, there's a very interesting convention, let's say that you'll see in bars and restaurants in Utah It's this thing called a Zion curtain. Have you ever heard of this?
0: No, I have not.
1: Okay. So if you're in a bar or a restaurant that serves liquor, they will have something called a Zion curtain, and it's essentially a frosted glass barrier that prevents patrons from seeing alcoholic drinks as they're being prepared. So basically, your, your bartender will stand behind this curtain to mix your drink or pour, you know whatever you are getting out of the bottles. Uh, Even more interesting is that no cocktail in Utah is allowed to contain more than a single shot of liquor, which is measured at 1.5 ounces.
0: Holy crap. Yeah, so you
1: couldn't get a martini that's bigger than 1.5 ounces, which is like the teeniest martini ever.
0: (laughs) And it seems like they're trying to make your alcohol experience quite magical since it has to be like – you know, covered up behind a curtain. You'll never know what <laughs> went into making that drink. Exactly,
1: exactly. Um, Some other things about Utah that reflect its its Mormon heritage uh, include the state bird. So the state bird in Utah is a California gull, which I'm like, hmm, but that's Utah. Why is it a California gull?
0: California, yeah.
1: Well, I did a little digging and I found out the story behind it is actually – In 1847, when the Mormon pioneers were first settling into the area that would become Salt Lake City and Utah, they had a really awful swarm of crickets come through and it threatened to wipe out their their crops that they needed to, you know, survive. But seagulls appeared and in an event that was dubbed the miracle of the gulls, these seagulls swooped down and consumed these swarms of crickets. And in commemoration of this event, uh, in 1913, a monument depicting two brass seagulls was perched atop a granite column that was erected in Salt Lake City's Temple Square. And to honor the benefit uh, the seagulls provided to the early Mormon settlers, they adopted the California gull as the official state bird.
0: Wow. Okay. Crazy, right? That's nuts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I thought Some, some wacky things about... Utah, and I think I'll, I'll I'll share one last very wacky fact with you, and it involves Jello. Eden Jello, yeah. Do you remember the last time you had you know some Jello?
0: It's been a long ass motherfucking time. I'll tell you that much. Mm hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if you live in Utah, that would definitely not be the case. Uh The population Is there of- a law? No, but apparently. People from Utah, Utahans, if you will, love jello, especially lime green jello. Utahans eat twice the amount of lime green jello than the rest of the country. Twice as much. Wow. Specifically, okay. lime green jello. It's like a hot seller. Uh, they actually have the highest consumption of jello per capita in the entire world
0: oh my god
1: and you know just because you know it's it's sugar and gelatin and you, you sometimes want to make things a little bit healthier uh the popular way that they like to enhance the jello in utah is to add shredded carrots to the lime green mix
0: oh yeah i've seen that i've <laughs> seen that and it's gross
1: so yeah that's that's my fun facts about the state of utah I hope that really sets the mood for what a unique and interesting place it is and and their deep love of jello. And apparently also Ugh. soda pop too. Like soda ha- is like the equivalent of Starbucks in in Utah because you know Mormons don't consume caffeine and instead they will drink sodas that have sugar in them as like a pick-me-up and like soda bars are like a popular thing in in Utah.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, see, like, if someone made, like, an iced tea bar... <laughs> you'd be there? Then I would go, oh, yeah. You'd be, you'd be
1: part of the mug club at the iced tea bar?
0: Absolutely, I would.
1: <laughs> nice. I have no concerns with this. I support this.
0: <laughs> awesome.
1: So, I know you said you were working on a mega story, but things kind of didn't 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 pan out the way you wanted it to, but you do have another story for us, right?
0: I do have another story. Yeah, I was working on... um. Susan Powell was who I was going to cover. Mm. Okay. Um, I don't know if you know anything about Susan Powell. Mm-mm. Um, she was a woman who was murdered, um, by her husband. In um in Utah, in West Valley City, I believe it was, it's right outside Salt Lake. Basically, like her, she disappeared. Mm-hmm. No one knew what happened. And the husband was like, oh, you know, I don't know. She's, I think he said like she stayed home and we went, we went camping. So we weren't there and all this. He went camping in the middle of February in, in Utah in the mountains.
1: Okay. That sounds no. not pleasant.
0: Yeah. Like everything he said was complete bullshit. Um, and it was just horrible by the end of it. Like they never found her body or maybe they did finally, but it took like forever if they haven't, if they mm-hmm. have found it by now. Um, yeah. But, like, it was the most heartbreaking thing. You can hear the 911 call, mm. which ended this whole case. Um, So he had had supervised visits with the kids by this point. And there's this 911 call by the social worker who was um overseeing the supervised visit. Uh, because she went to do her thing. Mm-hmm. And he was going to the house of the kids. The kids went in. He went in. He locked her out. Of the house for the supervised visit and wouldn't let her in.
1: Okay, suspicious. So she
0: called 911. She was worried about the kids' safety. Mm -hmm. The 911 operator was fighting with her because he was saying, Oh, no, you need someone to supervise the visit. You can't supervise your own visit. And she's like, I am the supervisor. Like, you know, he was not understanding. She's like, These kids' Mm -hmm. lives are in danger. Get someone down here. He's like, I'll send a car by in a while, but it's not an emergency since no one's life is in danger. She's like, I think their lives are in danger, you know. And then the house blows up.
1: That's crazy.
0: Yep. And the kids were dead. He was dead. And I believe that that a 911 dispatcher person, they either got fired or they got severely reprimanded for that one. But it was a nutty story, and I would have loved to tell it. But it was super long. And uh, you can listen to the podcast Cold. They covered it pretty well. Um, But I have a different story for you. Also taking place in Salt Lake City, because is there any other part of Utah?
1: I mean, Provo. (laughs) (laughs) Park City, that's about it. Yeah. So,
0: my story for this week takes place in Salt Lake City, Utah. It is the capital and most populous city in Utah. The county seat of Salt Lake County, which is also the most populous county in the state and is the 122nd most populous city in the whole United States. It's also very high up, being 4,226 feet above sea level. It has a population of 199,723 people as of the 2020 census, and the metropolitan area has 1,257,936 people who call it home. It is also large in area as the city covers nearly 111 square miles. It gets its name, quite obviously, from the Great Salt Lake and is also the setting of a movie I used to love, which Nicole mentioned a little earlier, SLC Punk, where they try to get rid of a car in said lake. (laughs) But as it is saltwater, things don't exactly go so well. If you are looking for things to do in Salt Lake City, first of all, don't try to sink a car in the Great Salt Lake. (laughs) Second of all, there's quite a wide variety of things to do. On the borders of the city, there's a lot of natural beauty, which is in stark contrast to the sprawling cityscape in its center. Here you can find a great place to adventure and take in some nature. There's Cottonwood Canyons. It offers great skiing in the winter and hiking, rock climbing, biking, and whatever the hell bouldering is in the summer. Have you ever heard of bouldering?
1: I feel like I've heard of it. Isn't it just like when people climb boulders?
0: Maybe, but I mean, that seems like (laughs) rock climbing climbing or hiking, you know? Yeah, I I don't know.
1: I don't understand that at all.
0: Well, I mean, hey, if you guys want to go there and boulder for us, please tell us how it was and, in fact, what it is.
1: Appreciate you. Thanks.
0: (laughs) As far as places to eat go, I wanted to talk about an interesting place called Mr. Shabu, Mm, which is an Asian restaurant with some truly great food. But what I found so interesting about this place is that they have toothbrushes, toothpaste, and mouthwash in the bathroom so you can leave with fresh breath.
1: How garlicky is their food,
0: probably very garlicky, <laughs> but I find that kind of cool, you know,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: I kind of expected Salt Lake City just not to have a lot of breweries, but guess what? they do, even though the area is heavily mormon populated. the Mormons aren't and you know Mormons aren't supposed to have alcohol like we talked about. You can get your drink on here anyway, but like Nicole said, they have to hide it from you while they're serving it, and then you can see it finally, mm-hmm. There are many other wonderful things to do in a city as large and diverse as Salt Lake City, but I can't cover it all in one intro because I still have my story to tell. The murders of Steve Christensen and Kathy Sheets.
1: Hmm. Okay, I'm excited. I- I'm not familiar with those names, so this is definitely going to be a new story for me.
0: Well, I wasn't familiar with it either, and then I found out that we were both semi-acquainted with it, really? and I'll explain more. Color me intrigued. Yeah. On the morning of October 15th, 1985, in the Judge Building in Salt Lake City, an explosion rocked the sixth floor, killing a man named Steve Christensen. Steve was 31. He was married to a woman named Terry, with whom he had four children. He was found by a colleague who was just stopping by her office that morning for a quick in and out to grab some things for several meetings that she had that day. But let's just say she probably didn't make it to those meetings. He was found in the doorway of his office, bloody, bruised, burnt, and with smoke marks on his skin. Mm. The explosion had torn the door off its hinges. Uh, Police, once on the scene, found small pieces of batteries and pipe, leading them to believe a bomb was the cause of this explosion. When looking at the batteries, one major thing investigators found was the brand Tandy was written on the batteries, and there was only one place that sold this brand, Radio Shack.
1: Okay, that's good, right?
0: Yes, and we all remember Radio Shack. R.I.P. <laughs> yeah. They also found what looked like some paper with Steve's first name on it in black marker, leading them to believe that the bomb was mailed to him. Oh, A jewelry store owner named Bruce Passy spoke with the police and further reinforced this idea that it was something sent to him as he said that he was riding the elevator that morning and saw a man carrying a box with Steve's name on it. Of course, this could just be a delivery person, but something to look into. He said the man was a white male, about 5'8", medium brown hair, and had a letterman jacket with no letter on it.
1: Hmm. Okay. Weird, but sure. Fashion. Yeah.
0: Weird. They were also able to find that the bomb had a motion-sensitive switch, which means the bomb can be activated when tilting the box, reinforcing the thought that the man with the package in the elevator was probably the bomber, since a delivery man, not knowing what's in the box, would probably trigger the bomb instead. So with just looking around this crime scene, police had already gotten a major clue, or at least what I'd say is a major clue, that could really help them narrow down their suspect pool. But first, they needed to look into Christensen's background a little bit. So Steve Christensen had recently left his job as vice president of a place called Consolidated Financial Services, or CFS for short. It was a real estate investment company, which was having some problems as of late. A lot of their clients had also been, you know, they have been losing money in a big way. And there was some suspected fraud going on there. Mm. Um, Steve is also a, I believe, bishop in the Mormon church as well, because it's Salt Lake City. Of course, there's going to be Mormons. I mean, there's, there will be
1: Mormons. There's a 60% chance he's a Mormon.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so if there was a fraud going on, that would make for excellent motive. And this motive seemed to check out as just two hours later, Another explosion happened across town, killing a woman named Kathy Sheets, a 50-year-old woman whose husband, Gary, was Steve's business partner. Coincidence? Uh, Definitely. I think not good, sir.
1: Yeah, definitely not a coincidence. Good, sir.
0: Yes, good, sir. Again, when investigating the explosion, they found paper with Gary's name on it and the telltale signs that this, too, was a bomb. Both bombs seemed to be similar, if not the exact same, with the components used. They spoke with a neighbor of the Sheets's, a 13-year-old boy, Aaron, who told police that he saw a tan Toyota minivan turn into the driveway at midnight on the night before the bombing. When they sent the gunpowder from the bombs to be analyzed, They came back as the same brand, Hercules Bullseye. Now that they knew this bomber had just struck twice, police knew it was time to get down to business and check out this Radio Shack lead before anything else happened. Mm -hmm. So they went to every Radio Shack in Salt Lake City, uh, which I'm assuming was quite a lot since this was 1985. So probably a lot of Radio Shacks in the very, very large city of Salt Lake City. Yeah, for sure. Um, Probably took a little bit. Oh, yeah. And they found someone by the name of Mike Hansen had purchased all the items at the scene recently. The Radio Shack people were able to give police the address for Mike Hansen, but surprise, surprise, it was a vacant lot.
1: Well, that's no lead at all, then.
0: Exactly. It couldn't be that easy now, could it? The next day, a third bombing happened.
1: Uh, But this
0: one wasn't a home. Or an office building. It was in a car. Hmm. The victim of this bombing actually survived. His name was Mark Hoffman. And he was a rare document dealer specializing in early Mormon documents. Because this is Salt Lake City, so why not? And although he survived the blast, he was far from unharmed. Two of his fingertips were blown off. His kneecap had blown off. And there was a piece of metal in his knee. Damn yeah. So he regaled the police with the events leading up to his attack. He went to get into the car, opened the door, and the package that was on the seat fell to the floor and exploded. Oddly enough, Mark did not have a connection to CFS. There was, however, a connection between Hoffman and Steve Christensen, as Christensen had purchased some things from Hoffman before. When investigating the car further, police began to notice some inconsistencies in Hoffman's version of events. Remember me saying that he told them the package was on the seat and fell onto the floor?
1: Yeah, it's weird. Didn't he, like, notice a package when he got into his car?
0: Yeah, so Forensic Files explained this very well because I know next to nothing about bombs, so I'm just going to quote them pretty much word for word here. So when a pipe bomb explodes, the end caps blow out in a straight line. But when this bomb exploded, one of the caps went through the passenger side door while the other ended up in Hoffman's knee. That was the piece that was stuck in his knee. Mm -hmm. So instead, what happened was his knee was on the seat of the driver's side and he had been touching the bomb when it went off which is evidenced by the injuries to his fingers. Okay. So with this information, it was clear the bomb went off toward the center console and not on the floor. Police decided to do some digging since things now just weren't adding up, and they searched Mark's home, where they found a letterman jacket with the letter missing, like our jewelry store owner had mentioned the man in the elevator was wearing. Hmm. Hoffman also owned a tan Toyota minivan like the neighbor kid saw the night before the second bombing. Interesting. Also, I'd like to point out that Mark Hoffman and Mike Hansen are very similar names, which drives me crazy because if I needed an alias, I would go with something wildly different from my actual name, not just use my own real initials and use the same amount of syllables and everything else. (laughs) So in my opinion, Mark Hoffman is just not a very smooth criminal. And plus, he blew himself up. I'm actually shocked that when the police came to the scene of the car bombing, that he was just not like, well, officer, I was trying to transport this bomb I made for totally legal and ethical purposes, when it had the audacity to explode on me. (laughs) The nerve. Oh. Oh. And in said van, by the way, the police found a little gunpowder, and it was also Hercules' bullseye brand.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So he's kind of like, I mean, all circumstantial technically, but they pretty much got him dead to rights.
1: Yeah, a lot of evidence against him.
0: Yeah, evidence is just mounting the hell up against Hoffman, honestly, but he's still insisting that he's just a victim in all this. And he wanted to prove it by taking a lie detector test, which he passed, giving police some pause. They're still suspicious, but they're like, well, he did pass the lie detector. But honestly, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Lie detectors are the junkiest of junk science. Honest people fail and psychopaths have an easy time passing. Moreover, you can train yourself to pass one. They also didn't know what his motive would be, though either since he had what seemed to police like a decent relationship with Steve and didn't seem to know the sheets is. Hmm. So police find out on the day of the first two bombings, Hoffman was meeting with Mormon church officials to talk about selling them some Mormon documents known as the McClellan Collection. If you're a non-Mormon, you're probably wondering what the hell the McClellan Collection even is. Well, I was right there with you, but luckily our friends, which I say like I know anyone who works there at all, at Women's Health Magazine, of all places, (laughs) tells me it's from letters and journals from William McClellan, who was a church leader back in the days of Joseph Smith, who was the founder. He gave us the Book of Mormon, a.k.a. the freaking founder of the church. Um, Basically, this document had some pretty scandalous things in it about Joseph Smith, and this was not something the Mormon church would want to get out. McClellan was actually excommunicated after having a crisis of faith, so I guess shaming the Mormons was now top priority. And I have no idea if this is the same thing as that Salamander book, but I know that he was also trying to, um, he also had the Salamander thing too. The salamander which, do letter. You know what that is? This, do you yeah. know what that is? Yeah.
1: Where this is the, Joseph
0: Smith got the seeing stones from a salamander that talked and
1: Yeah, and it kind of casts instead of the the story that is like the the of, official story, you know, that the seeing stones were presented by angels. It was like a white salamander, which almost mm-hmm. makes it seem sort of devilish or witchy.
0: Well, yeah, cuz it kind of is like the serpent in the garden then.
1: Mhm. Mhm.
0: So, yeah, he also had that little book as well that he was trying to pass off. Um, So, yeah, he had that meeting about the William McClellan book. Um, Again, like I said, Mark Hoffman, right?
1: Mike Hoffman. Mark Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: So now that we have a little background on that, I will tell you about what makes this meeting suspicious and presents motive. Steve Christensen was supposed to also be at that meeting to verify that this document was, in fact, real. Obviously, he never attended. Mm -hmm. The police tried to get information from the Mormon church several times during the investigation, but felt like they were being, in their own words, stonewalled at every turn. So they were not helpful in the least. So the police decide to get their hands on this document and forensically examine it to see if it is, in fact, real. Okay. Okay. This was done by taking other documents the Mormon Church already had tucked away uh, that were from like around the same time, and they noticed first that Hoffman's documents turned blue under UV light, which the other ones did not. They also saw that the ink used in his documents ran in one direction, and the others did not have this. There were also microscopic cracks in the ink of Hoffman's documents, which the other documents also did not have. This made a strong case for inauthenticity. Well, that and the recipe for an ink made in the 1800s they found in Hoffman's home as well. Whoopsie. Yeah. They also found the blue haze came from a technique which was used to age the paper. And this process also made the ink run when he had to like, you know, have them drying. Mm Mm-hmm. He also had this other document called the Oath of a Freeman, which is believed to be the oldest printed document in the U.S. Uh, it had apparently been verified as authentic by the Library of Cong- Congress and the FBI. Mm. Hoffman said he found it in a used bookstore and worth over it was over one million dollars. And guess what? They found it was printed. From a negative, and also not a real doc, not a real document.
1: Did anything he find, like, is anything he ever traded actually real? That's crazy.
0: Nope. They also found Hoffman had purchased a printing plate for the occasion. The receipt even stated that it was for "Oath of a Freeman."
1: Was it bought by Mike Hansen? (laughs) Go to uh... and the (laughs) name.
0: Yep, the name on the receipt was Mark. Hansen.
1: Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, you're right, dude. He like needs to come with a better alias. That's he sucks. (laughs) For somebody who seems to be super smart and crafty, he is just not. Yeah.
0: I mean, he swindled so many people out of so much, but not really the best when it comes to this stuff. Mm -hmm. The forensic investigator said that he examined over 600 of Hoffman's documents, and not a single one was real. Wow. Yeah. So this was enough to at least get him on several counts of fraud, and he was arrested January of 1986 and had four indictments and 27 counts, which included fraud, delivering a bomb, first-degree murder, theft by deception, and constructing and possessing a bomb. But that's not all, because later they added five more counts of theft by deception afterwards. Wow. You'd think something that was this high profile in Salt Lake City would go to trial And be a huge media circus, right?
1: I mean, maybe, depending on how much, like, it is the 80s, so I feel like it might depend on how much appetite the church had for something like that, right?
0: Yeah, well, if you thought that it'd be a big media circus, you'd be wrong, because he was offered a plea deal, (gasps) which was the minimum sentence of five years to life, so this never even went to court. Wow. Wow. Once he was in prison, his wife filed for divorce, and he was excommunicated from the LDS church. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, not surprised. Yeah, yeah, that
1: makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: He also tried to commit suicide in prison by overdosing on his antidepressants, and while he survived, in a weird twist of fate, he ended up spending 12 hours lying on his right arm, causing a loss of circulation, which in turn caused the muscles in the arm to atrophy. And that's his forging arm. Oh, no. Yeah, so he'll never use that again for forging. He's
1: never going to forge again. Been got a pretty <laughs> deal. Sorry.
0: <laughs> and see in my head was this arm's not made for forging. <laughs> so <laughs> Another final interesting note on this story is that Dory Olds, the ex-wife of Hoffman, actually became friends with the judge who sentenced her husband. Hmm. They had offices close to each other in the same building, and it gets weirder with this whole interconnected thing. Her son with Hoffman in the late two- in the year two thousand decided to do what all young Mormon boys do and was going to be a missionary in Germany. However, missionary work is expensive. Mm-hmm. Dory said she knew she and her family could put together the money for monthly expenses for the missionary work. But she did not know where she was going to get the money for all the clothes, which can also be very expensive. She asked the judge for help, and he recommended calling a man in town who was well-known for supplying Mormon missionaries with clothing. Mm-hmm. A man named Mac Christensen, Steve's father.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. So Mac said when asked later that he had forgiven Hoffman for killing his son, since that's what God wants people to do and had no problem helping them out. Dory says he gave them all the clothes her son would need and never charged her a dime. And also, I did not know this when I started writing, and this is how we kind of know the story a little bit, but this is the story that Murder Among the Mormons tells, that really boring documentary that we tried to watch.
1: Okay, is that how I knew what the white salamander letter was?
0: I think so. Okay. Possibly. It was
1: one of those things where like something really sounded familiar. And I was like, that's the only thing I remember.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't watch it when it came out because it was just way too boring. And I thought my story this week was actually interesting. So maybe I should try again. Maybe there'd be more information on there. I don't know. But I found out that it was the same thing because when I typed in his name to get more information, all of a sudden it was like murder among the Mormons. I was like, what?
1: You're like, maybe if you knew it it was that interesting of a story and not the boring story that neither of us could get through, then you might have finished the documentary.
0: (laughs) It was just, it was so tough, Nicole. You know, it was so tough to get through. Yeah. I wonder how other people felt about it. I wonder if our listeners have seen it and if they actually liked it
1: or not. Oh, cool.
0: But what do you think of this crazy-ass story, Nicole?
1: I mean, I think it's interesting that... You know, the Mormons are really literate people. They have a lot of record keeping. So I think it's a very interesting scenario that in the world of, like, Mormon paper trails and and, and history uh, documentation that somebody who, you know, grew up in the church decided to take it for a scam, you know?
0: Yeah. And I mean that's that's the weirdest thing and I also think it's weird that some of those documents were verified by the Library of Congress and the FBI.
1: Yeah. So it almost sounds like, like he, he got was past them. Yeah, he was kind of good at what he did, but I think he may have been very good at forgery and they got he got kind of cocky thinking maybe he was good at all crime which just is not it's a totally different skill set, right? <laughs> so
0: Exactly. And I think once they knew somewhat of what they might be looking for, it made it easier to spot the forgery.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of crack
0: the code on it. Exactly. Like that Da Vinci code. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> my sources for this week were Wikipedia, an episode of Forensic Files, Deseret or Desiree. Deseret. I don't know how you pronounce yeah, Deseret. it. Yeah, Deseret. Deseret. I was right the first time. Mm-hmm, Yay.com. Mm-hmm. Uh com. The Sun womenshealthmag.com which actually had several articles on I this love I love that no that idea was why. I
1: love that that was one of your sources. That's amazing. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> um esquire.com uh and churchofjesuschrist.org. Uh there may have been another source or two. I think I may have closed a tab by accident without marking it down, but if I did use you, you know who you are and thank you. <laughs>
1: well thanks for that story eden i think uh we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with a weird a weird news for this week and i can jump into my uh paranormal story
0: sounds good to me because i'm roasting in this bitch so let's get some (laughs) air conditioning on over the break and we're back so nicole i have a news story for you
1: oh is it weird unique and unusual
0: Yes, of course it
1: is. Fantastic.
0: And I'm hoping it's not one I read before. <laughs> <sighs> and the title is: Ukrainian couple stays handcuffed together for 123 days in an attempt to fix their relationship.
1: Youch! That might be too. In- That's
0: not going to fix it. That's going to make you murder each other. Yeah,
1: I'm like that might be a little too intimate to fix a relationship. <laughs> Yes. Sometimes space is a good thing. Oh, definitely. So
0: the, it's from Inside Edition, and the article says, The couple first locked themselves together on Valentine's Day in a last-ditch attempt to break a cycle of breaking up and making up. Unfortunately, it didn't work. One Ukrainian couple took cuffing season to another level. Jesus. I don't know what cuffing season is, Cuff, but okay. Cuffing
1: season is like the season uh, right before like when the holidays start. And you basically are like, uh-oh, it's November. Thanksgiving's coming around the corner. This person that I'm kind of mad about dating, I guess I'm going to continue to date them through the holidays. Oh. So I have someone to bring. So you like handcuff somebody to yourself for the oh, holidays. So man. cuffing season. That's the
0: worst idea ever. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but you know, it's wow. a, it's it's a thing, you know. Like like people like always end up breaking up around Valentine's Day because you're That's like, true. Mm-hmm. I don't want to buy this person a present, but I'm glad they got me through Christmas with my family.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I know that how your relationships work, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, <laughs> Alexander Kudlay and Victoria Pustovatova have split up after spending 123 days handcuffed together the couple first locked themselves together on Valentine's Day in a last-ditch attempt to break the cycle of breaking up and making up. They did everything together, grocery shopping, cigarette breaks, showering, and even using the bathroom. Well, if that's not going to end a relationship. Man.
1: They should have just said pooping because we all know it was pooping. Exactly.
0: And here's a head scratcher, the one with the name that I can't pronounce. Said she missed personal space the most, but also felt like Alex did not pay her enough attention while they were chained together.
1: Girlfriend, you sound literally clinging.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Probably hurried over the handcuffs. He did not tell me I miss you. Well, I would like to hear that, she said. Kudlay said he did not regret resorting to desperate measures to save the relationship adding that the cuffs helped him understand that the two were not like-minded people. But this does have a happy-ish ending. The couple, or ex-couple, plans to sell the handcuffs in an online auction and donate part of the money to charity. Cool. And that's the end of the article. Jesus Christ. Wow.
1: Why are people so crazy?
0: I found that one when closing out my tabs on my phone. (laughs) i had stored it like a long time ago because it was like one of the first two that i still had open out of like the 50 that i had open at the time because oh, i'm one of those people who never closes out their tabs oh yeah
1: a hundred percent it it bothers my wife to like no end that i'll have like i think right now i have like 170 tabs open in my phone browser and she's like how do you find anything i'm like i know where things are kind of
0: exactly <laughs> I know where they are, too. I'll lose them if I'm like, let's put this in my reading list. I don't know how to access that. And I will forget where it is and won't be able to find it. But if I keep the tab open, I will see it eventually.
1: Exactly. And
0: yes, it pissed off my past relationships, too, when I would do that. So, (laughs) oh, we are so much alike.
1: (laughs) Well, I could always be fine looking in your phone then, Eden, to find something in your browser for you. Exactly. So my story, again, because it's Utah and my majority of the people in Utah live in a select area, we're heading back to Salt Lake City. Hooray! Uh, I know you you talked a little bit about the fun things you can do in Salt Lake City. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the history and its location, that sort of stuff. Uh, So Salt Lake City is located in the north central part of the state, and it anchors an area called the Wasatch Front. And it's the largest metro area in the state. It runs along the Washette Mountains and includes other Utah cities you might have heard of, like Provo and Ogden. The population of the greater Salt Lake City area is estimated to be about 1.2 million people. So like you said, it's a pretty large city, covers 110 square miles today. It was founded in a semi-arid valley adjacent to the Great Salt Lake by Mormon pioneers led by Brigham Young in 1847. It is home to the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And as we've already talked about, the influence of the LDS Church members has helped bolster the growth of the city and Utah throughout its history. In 1869, the first transcontinental railroad in the United States was completed. And that golden spike that marked the joining of the eastern and western runnings of that railroad track was actually driven in at Promontory Summit, located to the north of Salt Lake City. The next year, a new rail line linked Salt Lake City to the Transcontinental Railroad, and the city became a major hub in the American West. So much so that it earned the nickname, quote, Crossroads of the West, as people began to pour into the city, seeking new opportunities that resulted from the booming mining business in the Utah Territory. When Utah entered the Union in 1896, the thriving Salt Lake City was selected as its capital. The city and its people failed pretty well during the first couple of decades of the 20th century, The mining industry continued to grow and new commercial ventures built around the beautiful natural landscape and outdoor sports in the area popped up as well. Unfortunately, the Great Depression of the 1930s hit Salt Lake City especially hard. Citizens saw the unemployment rate reach 36% and saw their normal income drop by 50%. Wow. Yeah, they were like when I say they were hit especially hard, it really, really was hit quite hard compared to other areas of the country. Despite federal assistance through New Deal programs and the charitable support of the LDS Church, Salt Lake City's economy didn't fully recover until World War II. The wartime demand for mineral resources provided by the mining industry, plus the installation of several military bases like Fort Douglas and Hill Air Force Base, helped the city recuperate from the devastation of the Great Depression. After World War II, Salt Lake City continued to rapidly grow. It began to suffer from some of the common problems that other American cities faced at the time. Urban sprawl became a growing problem due to this combination of rapid growth and the abundance of available land around the city. Banking, military, and aerospace industries also became dominant in the economy alongside a very strong tourist industry based around skiing and outdoor sports. I think my first understanding of Salt Lake City really happened during the 2002 Winter Olympics. Uh, Salt Lake City bid for the Winter Olympics several times during the 20th centuries, though, before they were finally selected for the 2002 Winter Games. Despite a scandal involving allegations that city officials bribed members of the International Olympic Committee to secure Salt Lake as the host city, the city still greatly benefited from the improvements made to its infrastructure during this time. To support the 2002 Winter Olympic Games, $1.5 billion were spent on highway improvements, including improvements to Interstate 15 through the city, new interchanges at Park City, They even built a light rail system from downtown to the suburb of Sandy, Utah, and later to the University of Utah. After the games, the Athletes Village was converted into student student housing at U of U, University of Utah. That's a really weird way to abbreviate that. Sorry. U of U. U of (laughs) U.
0: Oh, that must have been after they cleaned up all of the used condoms. And then if it got turned into a place for college students, there's probably more used condoms just littered all around. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, you know, it's really the circle of life.
0: Exactly. You do know that about the Olympics, right? Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: I mean, you have a bunch of very fit young adults mm-hmm. living in a very close tight-knit athlete's village. It's it's about to happen.
0: Exactly. All those people in the best shapes of their lives. Come on.
1: <laughs> uh, many of the venues and hotels and restaurants in and around the city that were built for the Olympics are actually still in operation today. So, Overall, the Olympics was a pretty big feat to the economy of the city. The Olympic legacy also helped by bringing in more conventions and festivals to the city. Now they have this great infrastructure, they can support a lot more. In addition to the Days of 47 Festival, which celebrates the early Mormon pioneers founding of the city, there are various festivals that occur throughout the year, including Utah Pride, the second biggest festival after Days of 76, by the way. Hmm. The Utah Arts Festival, portions of the Sundance Film Festival, and a festival I would personally love to check out sometime. It's called the Dark Arts Festival, and it's a three-day annual festival dedicated to goth and industrial subcultures and their music.
0: What? In Utah? (laughs) In
1: Utah. Yeah, it started in – Okay. It started in 1993, So it's been around for a while. Um, It's hosted hosted by this local goth club called Area 51. Uh, So I was like, holy moly, not only does Salt Lake City have a pretty big Utah Pride Festival, but then they also have this goth festival that I'm like all about goth fest. So
0: That's awesome. I want to go now. We have to take a trip to Salt Lake City.
1: (laughs) Now, historically, our stop for today has been important. An important arrival and departure point for many visitors to Salt Lake City. So I'd like to welcome you to the Rio Grande Depot. Located downtown at 300 South Rio Grande Street, the Rio Grande Depot provided passenger train service from 1910 to 1999 and was used as a main line transportation for rail in the city. Now, the history of the Rio Grande Depot I thought was kind of interesting because it's really entwined with the transcontinental railroad and westward, westward expansion history that really played into the development of Utah as a whole. In 1881, work on the Rio Grande Western Railroad commenced. The goal was to connect the city with a new rail line to the transcontinental line of the Union Pacific that was near Ogden, Utah. By 1887, the construction was complete, and then in 1901, control of that line passed to the Denver and Rio Grande Rail Line, which was held by San Francisco financier Jay Gould, who was pretty instrumental in building out a lot of the Western railroads uh, around the turn of the century. Now, to accommodate the increase in passengers that the Denver and Rio Grande Line brought in, the Rio Grande Depot was built in 1910 for a whopping price of $750,000. Uh, in today's money, that would be close to $20 million today. So this building was big and expensive. It was built with these decorative elements of Renaissance Revival and Beaux Arch. It has these huge arched windows that wrap around the building. There's green glass that's installed in some of the arched windows to keep the waiting area cool. It has two levels plus a basement. The second level is a mezz- mezzanine style where you can look down onto the first level. It included a barbershop, a restaurant, a men's smoking room, and a woman's lounge when it was first open. There was also a mm. telegraph office and a souvenir slash snack bar. Now, the depot was very popular during its first several decades of operation because it was so nice. There was a other Union Pacific depot a little ways around the road, but it was kind of dumpy in comparison to the Rio Grande depot. This depot saw an influx of new migrants to Utah. It was a central point for the residents of Utah and shipping soldiers off to both World War I and World War II. Unfortunately, the rise of highway automobile travel back in the 1950s struck a blow to rail travel and service at the depot also declined as well. While the depot continued to slowly sip into a decrepit state as the 1970s rolled around, it was added to the National Registry of Historic Places in 1975. Then the state of Utah stepped in and purchased the depot in 1977 for one dollar and helped restore the building it's currently home to the utah state historical society and its research center called the utah department of heritage and arts as well as the rio gallery and the rio grande cafe Uh, because the depot still had passenger rail lines connected to it after the state of utah purchased it it then went on to serve as Salt Lake City's Amtrak station in from 1986 to 1999. Uh, through the Rio Grand Depot, you could catch the California Zephyr, which ran between Chicago and Emeryville, California. The Desert Wind, a train that ran from Chicago to Los Angeles. And the Pioneer Train, which ran daily from Chicago to Seattle. So basically, you could get anywhere (laughs) uh, from Chicago to the West Coast at that depot.
0: That's a lot of places. Mm
1: -hmm. By 1999, the Amtrak station needed to be moved to the Salt Lake City Intermodal Hub, mostly to support... The continued growth of Amtrak, and also because the tracks that led to the Rio Depot, Rio Grande Depot, had to be removed permanently as part of the highway expansion needed for the 2002 Olympics. While the Utah Historical Society op- operates a museum in the Rio Grande Depot, the building itself today is temporarily closed. It is under repair after being damaged by a 5.7 earthquake that hit Magna, Utah on March 18th, 2020. The future of the depot is also uncertain. In 2015, the Salt Lake City Redevelopment Agency deemed that the Rio Grande Depot was a barrier to redevelopment in the area because its location results in the blockage of Rio Grande Street. But in 2020, A bunch of private citizens who are professional planners proposed to reopen the depot as the Salt Lake City main passenger rail and bus terminal to replace the aging Salt Lake City Central Station. Only time will tell what course the city will take regarding the depot's future, but I for one hope they decide to maintain this historic building, not just because of its architectural beauty and history, but also because of the strange paranormal experiences that have been reported at the Rio Grande Depot.
0: Ooh. Well, I mean, not gonna lie, I kinda had a feeling this was coming.
1: (laughs) Not a surprise, right? So the most popular story and most popular sighting that people have seen at the depot is an entity called the Purple Lady. Purple Lady, okay. She appears as a beautiful young woman wearing this purple dress and large hat. Uh, all dressed in purple, and it's very much in the style of the early 20th century. She's often seen near the women's restroom in the depot or near the cafe or on the second floor mezzanine. Those who have seen her said she either looks incredibly sad or angry.
0: She could just have ghost resting bitch face. (laughs) It's a thing.
1: (laughs) Hashtag ghostly resting bitch face. (laughs) So according to the folklore around the station, uh, this woman was at the station with her fiance when they got into a heated argument. With feelings running extremely high, either the woman or fiance ripped off her engagement ring and threw it. Unfortunately, the ring ended up rolling off the platform and onto the tracks. Sobbing and distraught, the woman went down onto the tracks to find the ring, but was unfortunately hit by an incoming train. She died instantly. Then in 1947, the first known sighting of the purple lady was reported when a woman traveling on the train stopped to use the restroom. She claimed to have seen a woman wearing a purple dress and large purple hat in the style of the early 20th century. She looked extremely sad, and when the woman went to ask her what was wrong, she disappeared. Since that sighting, several other people have seen the purple lady. Most often, she appears near the women's restroom, However, people could also hear singing drifting from that restroom as well.
0: Oh, creepy.
1: (laughs) It just reminded me of that character in Harry Potter, uh, Myrtle.
0: Moaning Myrtle. Rolling
1: Myrtle, yes. I immediately was like, is the purple lady moaning Myrtle?
0: (laughs) I love moaning Myrtle. I especially love the fact that she was playing like a 12 or 13 or 14 year old when she was like 40.
1: I know. I know. That actress is amazing. (laughs) But- So you hear the singing coming from the Purple Lady's restroom, uh, and there's other bathroom mischief that happens as well. According to one longtime uh, Rio Grande Depot employee, a man named Dickie Holt, he's witnessed quite a bit of nonsense. Uh, He shared a story about one incident where the taps in the bathroom sinks were running full force and they could not be turned off. Um, One of the hostesses who worked at the cafe had tried to turn off the taps, and then when she couldn't, she exited the restroom and asked Dickie for help fixing the problem. According to Dickie, he grabbed the plunger and barely touched the tap when it turned off by itself. So if that wasn't spooky slash annoying enough, there's other entities that have been observed at the station as well. On the second floor mezzanine, employees have reported an invisible entity that stomps around at night and will sometimes brush past people. According to one of the security guards, uh, he would regularly hear footsteps on the mezzanine around the same time every night. Each time he heard the footsteps, he did his due diligence and raced up the stairs to catch the perpetrator, only to find that there was no one there. One night, Hmm. he decided to head up to the mezzanine about 15 minutes before he usually heard the stomping around to catch the person in the act. Uh, While he sat there waiting to see who was playing pranks on him, He heard the footsteps approach, yet he didn't see anyone. Then he suddenly felt something or someone brush up against him, and the footsteps faded away as if a person had just walked by him.
0: Ugh, gross. Okay.
1: Right? I'm like, "Mm, nope. Hard pass. No thanks. (laughs) (laughs) No thank you. (laughs) Uh, I would not want to be a security guard at the Grande Home Depot either, because apparently they get stuck with the short end of the stick at night. Aside from the creepy entity on the Mezzanine level, the basement is also apparently very unpopular, especially because the building security system has a tendency to go off at night, and that requires the guard to do a complete check of the building, including the basement. And in the basement, the guards have reported hearing voices talking, even soft music playing sometimes. And just overall, it's a creepy feeling in the depot basement. Uh, Other longtime employees have reported things like lights turning off and on, slamming doors, objects being displaced overnight. Even the paintings in the building will appear to be crooked, like somebody had just knocked them off their nail a little bit and didn't replace them back. And this would happen overnight as well
0: little ghost assholes i
1: know (laughs) like you don't have a level eye stop moving the painting
0: (laughs) right such jerks
1: (laughs) uh the cafe manager uh colleen murphy has said that she has also noticed lights coming on at night apparently of their own accord in multiple rooms uh, especially near the bottom of the north stairwell she also claims to have been locked out of the building on multiple occasions with no explanation like she would go to like take something outside like the trash and make sure she would leave the door open and unlocked and by the time she would return it would be closed and locked. <laughs> I'm like,
0: "Oh my god, no." That's
1: annoying as hell.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, definitely.
1: Others have reported seeing other entities that sound more like residual hauntings from their descriptions. It's uh ranging from the old station master walking around the lobby and then disappearing almost like he's on a circuit around the building. Uh, they've also seen other human-shaped entities at the far en- south end of the building or hovering at the end of the north hall, northern end hallway and stairwell. So there's a lot going on at the Rio Grande Depot, especially at night. But I do think it's very interesting that the Purple Lady is one of those very well-known ghosts in Salt Lake City if you search purple lady utah it'll bring you to some pictures of the rio grande depot wow so eden thoughts on this would you like to have the rio grande depot restored as as a new rail center or just torn down to be replaced by redevelopment
0: oh hell no don't tear it down it's part of history let's keep it and where will that purple lady go (laughs) and who will the other ghosts lock out of the building and will there be any paintings anymore to, uh, you know, slightly move off the nail? I don't think <laughs> so. We need to keep this place alive.
1: I agree 110% with all of those sentiments.
0: <laughs> I liked your story. It was really freaking cool. I liked the the purple lady, especially. Yeah. And then also dick ghosts, but, you know. Yeah.
1: I mean, who doesn't love it like a dick ghost? But I guess the people they're haunting answered. Yes, Asked and answered. <laughs> Uh, my sources were Wikipedia, thecleo.com, OnlyInYourState.com, and Deseret.com.
0: Well, thank you, Nicole. And I guess that is the end of our show for this week.
1: If you like the stories you heard today, please feel free to rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice. Or if you have some direct feedback for us, do not hesitate to send us an email. You can reach us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com.
0: You can also visit our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com.
1: You can stop by any of our social media sites. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror.
0: We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and e Massey for our intro and outro music.
1: Until next time, Roadsters, creep on, creep on. on, creeping creeping on. on.